To an Unknown God, a poem by Joshua Hren. Humanitas in Latin comes first and properly from humando, burying, ego. I pulled the string that choked the bag of wind some mad god gave our crew. We blew before the darkened crags without a hint of dawn's dull red to illuminate the bodies' boards that broke between the bloodied crags, cracked limbs and lumber equally. Our precious metals sank to fill the stomachs of Leviathan. But here, undressed, completely chilled, I drag the floating dead ashore and dig with nails grown fierce from wrath, a row of graves, a path for death to walk away from ruthless earth. I summon fire with sticks and stones and raise my arms out like a mast and offer up my surplus life to an unknown god, some lord of strife. I gather crumbled ruins and mark where worms eat well and have their fill. I call them cruel, sick sentience. Their sentence please, O Jove the just. But I, unanswered, I atone. I eat the snakes before they feed upon my friends. I sleep on stones. The centuries will soon make smooth, like some strange god who'll ransom bones. A circus of water, turbid, churning. Horses run the green-white waves. With the wind, a serpent's hiss of sand. On January 7th, 2008, Lem Long murders his children tossing them one by one from the crown of the Dauphin Island Bridge into the Mississippi Sound, south of Mobile, Alabama. 106 feet from the deck to the water, blunt force trauma and asphyxia from drowning. The currents drifted the bodies west. The two boys were recovered first. Ryan, aged three, by Oysterman in Bayou Lafouche Bay, and Danny, an infant, only four months old, by duck hunters near Pointe Pines. Lindsay, aged one, was found near Pascagoula. Hannah, aged two, was finally pulled from the water in coastal Louisiana, 144 miles away, near the mouth of the Mississippi River. Several islanders, passing back and forth, saw Lem Long and his children at the top of the bridge that morning. One man feared Long was a jumper. Another thought the van had broken down. A third assumed Long was throwing bags of garbage over the rail and slowed down to tell him off, but then, seeing kids in the van, drove on, wanting to avoid a potentially angry confrontation in front of children. He remembered especially one of the girls, still in her car seat, she smiled as he passed. Later, at Long's trial and then sentencing for capital murder, the lead police investigator offered as testimony a video of himself recreating the crime of four sandbags matched to the weight of each child thrown from the bridge into the water, the video accompanied by an in-court primer on the velocity of descending objects and allowed by the court for the jury to appreciate more fully 
the atrocity, the special cruelty, under consideration. The same investigator told also of the days immediately following the murders, of Long's claims of ignorance and innocence, of handing off the children to strange women in Gulfport or Biloxi, until at last he admitted the four were dead, and when asked where they could be found, directed the police to the bridge. The officer, incredulous, asked Long, Do you mean to tell me you threw your four children off the top of the Dauphin Island Bridge? And then, even after Long answered yes, asked him again, You killed your children by throwing them off the Dauphin Island Bridge? In his own words, not fathoming what he was being told, what Long was admitting. The fathom, of course, being the customary measure of deep water. The span of a man's arms outstretched from hand to hand, the embraceable, as it were. And so also, a figurative measure for the capacities of the human heart, of madness, malice, or even joy, but here still falling short, 106 feet from the deck to the water. This is Lidwine, Imagination for the Remnant, Season 1, with work by Joshua Wren, K.P. Dyer, and Leslie Clinton, and featuring the music of the Cimarron Kings. I'm your host, Brian Kennedy. This is Episode 3, Jack of Cups, Part 1. Heron tracks and catfish skulls, a dead pelican, a drowned deer, blue shadow of a man walking. Christianity is a true crime religion. At its heart are scandal, treachery, and murder. Strange to think that we the people would ever turn away from Jesus Christ and him crucified, given the proclivities, the bloody entertainments, so beloved in this bloody land. On the one hand, the good God of the universe, the three-in-one, the one-in-three, maker and destroyer of worlds, condescended to shame among his creatures, with a brow to welcome thorns, with hands that did embrace the violence of the nail. In opposition, the peril implied by man as a rational creature, by the gift of love, that if it be real, it must be free, and so must hold within itself the possibilities of rejection, the heart of man become not a temple, but a void, the sensible become senseless, become welter and waste. Picture in this regard as emblematic not only Lem Long himself, but our old comrade Lee Harvey Oswald, he of unlimited aspirations and extremely limited talents. Perhaps at his apartment in Minsk, in 1961, a glorious, dyslexic defector struggling through his Dostoevsky, whose Soviet descendants were so ill-suited for a world of progress and efficiency, for the new frontier, they found themselves in Cuba in 1962 trying to hide ballistic missiles under palm trees. Picture young Lee endeavoring to discern his own 
surely spotlit days. And where did these sages pick up the notion that man must have something that they feel is a normal and virtuous set of wishes, good Theodore wrote, remembering, no doubt, St. Paul in Romans chapter 7? What makes them think that man's will must be reasonable and in accordance with his own interests? All man actually needs is independent will, at all costs, and whatever the consequences. And so we live suspended, as though hung upon a cross, between two mysteries, between the Almighty and our equally unfathomable selves. It is at once a name revealed and something like the refusal of a name, as our catechism teaches. Whichever way we turn, we are confronted by the insoluble. Yet still, we struggle to know what we can to arrange and rearrange memory and language for the sake of story, scouring the strand for secrets tossed up by the churning of deep waters. In this effort, when it comes to the mysteries of God and man, we're perhaps better served by a deliberately discursive approach, gravitating to the random and swinging with the non-sequential, to paraphrase Joan Didion. She who despaired of the imposition of the narrative line, yet went on to write beautifully crafted prose, imposing just that. Her own life and writing could serve as our guide in this respect, a California girl as sign and symbol, as good a guide as any for slouching toward Bethlehem, ha ha. But for the sake of our peculiar narrative, and not just for purely tribal reasons, mind you, we'll choose instead another writer with whom to journey on the bloody mystic road. Choose instead Jack Kerouac. Specifically, Jack Kerouac drunk on television, on firing line with William F. Buckley Jr., September 1968. The topic tonight, Buckley explained, is the hippies, an understanding of whom we must, I guess, acquire or die painfully. Kerouac invited his progenitor or prophet, however reluctant, of the mise-en-scene, a writer whose work, quote, seemed to be preaching a life of disengagement, making a virtue of restlessness, unquote. But that night, on the set, in his cups, legs crossed, slumped in his seat, Cigar, sport coat, and canary yellow shirt, looking more like a middle-aged tire salesman or the manager of a used car lot, looking a lot like Lowell, his hometown, a rambling, grumbling, fleshy, red-faced fool. Alongside Kerouac, two other guests, Louis Yablonsky, a prominent sociologist, and Ed Sanders, a writer and musician, and representative member of the counterculture, a genuine long hair. Both men clearly troubled by Kerouac's condition, but forging ahead dutifully nonetheless, discussing LSD, Vietnam, Madame de Gaulle, communes, the Democratic National Convention, and even the propriety of hippies phoning the police for help in times of trouble, all the while Buckley deftly poking holes. But Kerouac, Oh, mon pauvre Tijon, 
voice of a generation, barely a year away from his own death, from 18 bleeding hours at the Catholic hospital in St. Petersburg. Excessive ethanol intake, the death certificate read. Many years. Poor Jack could only snarl and snort and interrupt, sharing his mother's nonsense songs for Hubert Humphrey and embarrassing himself with non-sequiturs about hoodlums, communists, and Spiro Agnew. The camera cut occasionally to the poet Allen Ginsberg watching from the audience, face composed but clearly tense, his heart seemingly resigned to the spectacle, the suffering. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness. As Kerouac insulted him from the stage and started in on settling scores with those who sought to cast him as some sort of figurehead or propagandist for the tumult at the time, those who turned the idea that I had, he said, that the beat generation was a generation of beatitude and pleasure in life and tenderness. But they called it the beat mutiny, the beat insurrection, words I never used, being a Catholic. I believe in order, tenderness, and piety. For Kerouac, it was the worst of all possible scenarios. He'd become a writer whose work, in some sense, no longer need be read. For even if Buckley was kind enough to mention Vanity of Deleuze, Jack's latest, and, as Buckley touted, widely regarded as his best, everyone knew Kerouac was there for On the Road and nothing else. For what the New York Times in 1957 called a major novel, a historic occasion, the most beautifully executed, the clearest, and the most important utterance yet made by the generation Kerouac himself named years ago as Beat, and whose principal avatar he is. A work the very success of which drove Kerouac past fame and influence and into outright decay and so brought him to Buckley's stage that night, not as an American writer of importance, passing into timelessness, but as a writer in need of explanation, in need of sociology. What an insult, even if unintentional. Certainly unintentional, right? And so angry, yes, at having to share the stage, but a drunk doesn't need an excuse, not really. The maudlin parade comes naturally. Petulance, too. The cheap complacency of the bottle. All hail the gods of grape and grain. Kerouac is out of style, the sociologist Yablonsky offered to the laughter of the crowd in that Year of the Pig, 1968. He's still on alcohol. I woke up as the sun was reddening, and that was the one distinct time in my life, the strangest moment of all when I didn't know who I was. I was far away from home, haunted and tired with travel, in a cheap hotel room I'd never seen, hearing the hiss of steam outside, and the creak of the old wood at the hotel, and footsteps upstairs, and all the sad sounds. And I looked at the cracked high ceiling and really didn't know who I was for about 15 strange seconds. I wasn't scared. I was just somebody else, some stranger, 
My whole life was a haunted life, the life of a ghost. I was halfway across America, at the dividing line between the east of my youth and the west of my future. And maybe that's why it happened right there and then, that strange red afternoon. We left New Hampshire and moved to the island in the summer of 2015, seven and a half years after the murders. Just as Abraham rose and drove his flocks toward Canaan land, we simply gathered up our children and our possessions and headed south. So began the part of our lives you could call our life on the road. When people asked why we came to Alabama, I lied, told them I was writing a book. I described the corpus of literature associated with small islands about the Durrells, Douglas, Huxley, Stevenson, Bioy Casares, and all the rest. I pointed out that no writer had ever profitably done the same for our island, only 14 miles long from end to end, drifting with the wind and waves at the mouth of Mobile Bay, that the natural history and human culture of the place were overlooked and untouched, though the stories, even in brief, were certainly worthy of a wider audience. When a French expedition, led by Pierre Lemoyne, Sieur d'Iberville, explored the island in 1699, they found, scattered in the sand on the far western shore, an immense jumbled pile of human and animal bones. These were likely what remained of an old native Malvila burial mound, dispersed by a passing storm. In his travels through the region in the late 18th century, the naturalist William Bartram wrote of similar mounds among the Choctaw, of their care and reverence for the dead, corpses exposed upon scaffolds, left until putrefied, the flesh then stripped from the bones, the bones washed, dried, and kept until their number was great enough to be stacked together and covered over with dirt. The French, though, knew nothing of these customs, not yet, and thought instead they stumbled upon the aftermath of some great and terrible slaughter. Uncomprehending, afraid, and far from home, they named the island accordingly, Yil Massac, Massacre Island. Accompanying Iberville on his journey was a younger brother, Jean-Baptiste Lemoyne, Sieur Bienville, the founder in later years of both Mobile and New Orleans. Enigmatic and driven, Bienville would soon establish close ties to the natives of the region, even going so far as to have his body tattooed as theirs were with images of rattlesnakes, Serpent Arsonet. The natives were fond of him, it said, but also afraid, though the sources never mention their reasons why. Before the French were the Spanish conquistadores of the 16th century, and Isabella Bobadilla, daughter of Pedrarius Davila, who executed Balboa, and so called for this and his other cruelties in the New World, furor domini, the wrath of God. Isabella married Hernando de Soto, and is said to have waited on the island as her husband famously pillaged the Indian lands of the mainland. She planted a garden, including fig trees, 
near the shell middens on the northern shore, and while digging there found another cache of broken human bones, the marrow sucked clean on these, guarded by a carved stone idol of great ceremonial import and unknown power. In 1542, Upon receiving word of her husband's death from fever somewhere on the banks of the Mississippi River, she purportedly buried all her gold and jewels deep in a well on the island and set sail for Cuba, never to return. The Pirate Raid of September 1710 The Hurricane of 1906 and Hurricane Frederick in 79 A woman's body left sometime somewhere along the strand a stack of silver dollars laid out neatly for whomever found and buried her. So many stories to choose from and share, and sooner or later I would see in the eyes of my interlocutor an unspoken but welcome, bless his heart, that curious southern expression reserved as condemnation for the feeble and the failed. Welcome because it meant the substance of their question was avoided, lost, in a storm of words, because the truth was I had no clear sense why we came to the island, only that we had to get away from where we were from, get out on the road, so to speak, and if that happened, perhaps the rest would fall into place. Because a man with a family, a wife, and children can't talk about such things, not politely. I certainly couldn't mention my growing sense of déjà visité starting as soon as we came across the bridge, catching our first glimpse of the gas platforms out in the gulf and watching the pelicans fly low over the water. I know this place. I know myself in this place. And with that recognition, however absurd, an illimitable ache, just as Adam must have felt after having named the animals, from the serpent to the dove, when first presented with the woman created as his helpmate. This one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Lightning hung from an edge of cloud, cypress, pine, and saw palmetto, a ragged bird resting. Before we left New England, I visited Kerouac's grave in Lowell with a priest friend and a couple of the children in tow. While Father prayed the rosary and the children wandered back and forth among the headstones in the sunshine, careful to keep quiet as they'd been told, I stood at the edge of the plot in wearied silence, unsure of what to say or do or even pray, all of it ashes and dust in that moment thinking of Kerouac's books, seeing his headstone laid flat in the sun-scorched grass. He honored life. And so all I did in the end was leave a prayer card of Our Lady of Sorrows I found tucked inside my wallet. Nearby stood a statue of Passaconaway, great Sachem of the Penacook Indians. I told the children the story of his last night on earth when, as an old Old man, he was carried by wolves to the very top of the crystal hills far to the north and assumed into heaven like Elijah 
in a carriage of flame. Afterward, downtown, at a St. Vincent de Paul, while sorting through the junk, the glassware and cassette tapes, the faded, dingy toys, we found, rested behind a display of rotary telephones, a framed portrait of the scourged Christ. A gift from Kerouac, I knew, in exchange for the picture of Our Lady. An older writer, mentoring a younger. It was handmade from what might have been a photograph, perhaps from a passion play, cut out, pasted, and overpainted on red satin. The Lord stood beside a pillar on a low, narrow platform, hands tied, the rope looped up and around his neck, cartoon sunflower of light above his head, radiant, thick, luxurious auburn hair, eyes downcast, arms and legs crisscrossed in bleeding slashes, condescended to shame among his creatures, a man on a stage, a man of sorrows, waiting, come and see. Now Jack, Mr. Kerouac, William F. Buckley asked on television in September 1968, to what extent do you believe that the Beat Generation is related to the hippies? What do they have in common? Was this an evolution from the one to the other? I'm 46 years old. These kids are 18, Kerouac answered, bleary-eyed, blinking. But it's the same movement, which is apparently some kind of Dionysian movement in late civilization, and which I did not intend, any more than I suppose Dionysus did, or whatever his name was. Although I'm not Dionysus the Areopagite. He laughed. I should have been. His eyes shone sober for a moment. The heart of the man broke through the haze, or so it seemed. Perhaps Kerouac, who offered in his work so nakedly the arc of his own dissolution, the torment of his visions of America and pilgrimage, his visions of the cross. Perhaps the man in his decay had passed mercifully beyond the cant of sociology, polite discourse, or even literature, and entered into a language of suffering where the saint could be a better friend and guide, pseudo-Dionysius, who taught the form and balance of celestial intelligence, of angel calling unto angel, and who understood what should and can be said and what should not, having explicated the divine names. I remember a man I knew growing up. He was a lineman for the power company, good and decent by all accounts, hardworking, but then undone somehow by alcohol. He lost his job, and then his family, ended up wandering town, utterly ravaged, sometimes trying to direct traffic with his beer in his hand, stinking of sweat and piss and wood smoke, waiting to grab us on the sidewalk, even his children, telling us to go on up there and tell them 
They're nothing but a bunch of mannequins. Tell them to, tell them to drive into goddamn fast. I got more strength in my little finger. The noise and commotion had him enraged. A peculiar fixation, given his circumstances. One morning, when he couldn't stand it any longer, he stripped off his clothes and barricaded his street with a pile of discarded toilets he'd collected. Traffic backed up in both directions, and then waited there, naked and bellowing, for the cops to collect him. He was sent to county jail and evicted from his apartment. I was ten years old. His landlord, a rich man, a lawyer, father of a girl in my fifth grade class, knowing we needed to raise money for our class field trip that spring to see a real lighthouse on Cape Cod, to see the Mayflower and Plymouth Rock, hired us to clean out the place, a basement apartment in unbelievably filthy. Piles of trash, broken furniture, styrofoam containers of food crusted with mold, even a stack of begrimed, outdated calendars featuring badly lit cheesecake photographs of half-naked fat women. We tried to work and be cheerful, but being only in the fifth grade and mostly innocent, we never saw anything like it and were stunned, frightened. We got quieter and quieter, lapsed into anxious silence. Until suddenly, someone screamed, It's poop! We all turned to look. A boy stood over a mound of trash strewn near the front door, holding an old crutch out in front of him, and hung from the end was a pair of men's underwear, cradling a huge black clump of shit. But the worst of it wasn't his underwear. It's that this man, this drunk, his daughter, was also in our class. She was there with us, seeing it all and helping to clean it up. I was with her when she found her father's makeshift bedroom, just a busted wooden frame and a piss-stained mattress shoved underneath some stairs. He had her school portrait stapled onto the bedpost. She didn't live with him. She lived with her mother. All he had was her picture, hung like an icon for the rising and setting of his day. When she found it, she just smiled and said, with patient surrender, well, that's my dad, reached over, grabbed it, slipped it into her pocket, and walked away. And what could I say to her? What could anyone possibly say? On the 400 Block, a poem by K.P. Dyer. It wasn't a flat, but rather a short cottage, slate roof, copper flashing, upward stairs leading to a dormered floor, where lived a little lady, Mrs. Taft. Her house was set in refined simplicity, and there, shawled, she sat staring out at the yard, counting worms pulled by robins, or reading the Knickerbocker news, 
To the paper girl, she gave always as a tip a small round flat time machine trip to when the war was on. A penny made of lead, dated 1943, a lesson in frugality and improvisation, much like jazz as it made a different jingle among the change. Be not afeard, the aisle is full of noises, sounds and sweet airs that give delight and hurt not. Our early time on the island was nearly paradisal. We walked through the forest and across the dunes. We sat along the shore. We swam and gambled in royally brown waves. I spent one of our first evenings standing outside our new house, staring up into the pines, listening to cicadas churn and drone in the high branches. I shined a flashlight into the treetops. A cicada came falling toward the light, ricocheting onto the concrete patio where it lay, stunned. I picked it up and carried it indoors to show the children. Milky white eyes, blind eyes, that made me think of Borges or Tiresias the prophet. The children showed me a dead centipede found hanging from a wall socket, and pale green lizards gathered on the backyard windows. More than anything in those days, I tried to make sense of intuition. I found an account of a woman on the island in the days before the bridge, Alabama Lammy Bosarge, called Aunt Bama, a healer of both animals and people, a prophetess of sorts, and a kinder witch, it seems, than Caliban's dam. There's music in the air, Bama told the other islanders. One of these days you're going to hear it, and you won't have to go to heaven. Her presentiment was echoed curiously in the narrative of Wallace Turnage, a young black slave who, in August 1864, upon hearing federal troops had seized both Forts Morgan and Gaines at the mouth of Mobile Bay and occupied the island, fled south from Confederate Mobile along the western shore of the bay. He ran two dozen miles, starved and thirsty, alone, through pine woods, needle rush, and cord grass, across three rivers, the dog, the deer, and the fowl, tormented by snakes, evading all capture until, at last, at land's end, in sight of the island, he found a final stretch of open water to contend with, the Mississippi Sound at Grants Pass and Passeron. He first tried to cross balanced upright on a salvaged log, poling himself through the shallows, but lost the bottom in deeper water, barely able to withdraw safely to shore, struggling against the tide, drawing him north into the bay a sure return to slavery, or worse. He continued to shelter there at Cedar Point six days, expectant, impatient, praying for final opportunity, for deliverance. On the morning of the seventh day, he woke before dawn to a voice, a song, rising from within him in blessed ululation, guiding him to the water's edge 
a tiny boat there washed ashore for him in waiting. Like it was held, he later wrote, by an invisible hand. Certain, determined, he set out again, paddling with a broken board, floating farther and farther, closer and closer, until, seeing him overwhelmed by a sudden squall come down from the bay, a boatload of Yankee soldiers took pity, rescued him from the water, and brought him safely onto the island. He thought he could speak his mind there, finally, as a free man, and they would listen. They would have to listen. Don't we all just want someone to listen? On the island, I sometimes sat out on the back steps in the heat of the day, a tremendous heat that felt as if one were being buried alive, slowly, in a drift of fine, burning sand. I sat with my guitar and tried to write, but heard no songs. The children, playing, stopped to chatter as they passed. Daddy, we found it a whip. It was green on the inside. I had to bring it back to the woods, but I got a thorn caught on my dress, my new Christmas dress, and sister couldn't get it off. During our time on the island, we drove back and forth across the bridge three or four times a week, sometimes more. We lived there for over a year before anyone even mentioned the murders. The Jealous Moon, The Thousand Stars, Aristotle's Lantern, Coquina Clams, The Birds Fly Low or Fly High in Bad Weather. Before it all happened, Lem Long worked on the shrimp boats out of Biloxi and Bayalabatri. In 2005, the family was displaced by Hurricane Katrina, moving to Georgia, where his common-law wife, Hugh Nokfan, mother of the four children, found work in a nail salon and long as a hibachi chef in a Japanese restaurant. It was during this time, it seems, that Long was undone by drug addiction, even going so far as to call 911 while giving the children a bath one evening to turn himself in for crack possession. They returned to South Alabama in 2007, with Long disappearing for days at a time to smoke crack in the family minivan. Much would be made of this drug habit in the aftermath of the murders, part of the community's desperate and unsuccessful attempt to make sense of the senseless. There's thousands of crack addicts out there that haven't thrown their kids off a bridge, the Mobile County Sheriff noted. It's been my experience that drugs are usually involved in some of these more bizarre crimes, but there are other things that come into play. Long was born in Vietnam, the child of a Vietnamese woman and an unknown black American soldier. As a so-called Wee Doi, child of dust, he lived as an outcast and was sent away from Ho Chi Minh City by his mother at age six to stay with relatives in the countryside of the Mekong Delta. At age 14, he emigrated to the United States. What consequence Long's background had on events is difficult to know. Also unclear, as some suggest, is whether he actually planned to return alive from the bridge that morning, or if his initial impulse was to cast himself into the water after finishing with the children. Regardless, 
staying alive brought an extra share of satisfaction. Feeling disrespected by his wife and her family, he later said he wanted more than anything to see the look on her face when he told her the children were dead. He also wanted to be famous, and though he certainly gathered a full measure of local infamy, packed down, shaken together, and poured into his lap, a more national celebrity eluded him. Why, in the year of Jody Arias and Casey Anthony, were the savage contributions of Lem Long to the murder culture of America overlooked? Perhaps, as a local attorney suggested, Long's background made the prospect too difficult, that a full treatment of the crime would bring up unpleasant matters of race, class, even the unresolved memory of the American involvement in Vietnam. In a word, too complicated to be sensational. But it may be that our inattention to the crime somehow speaks to a shame we thought we'd lost, that in his brutal theatricality, Lem Long unwittingly misread his audience, and that the thought of a man tossing his children one by one from the top of a bridge was just too horrible ever to pass as entertainment, even in America. The people of South Alabama were not so fortunate. The babies are safe in the arms of Jesus, a marquee sign at a church in the bayou read. The Mobile Press Register published a poem written by an 18-year-old girl in Irvington where Long and his family had lived. Hush now, babies, it's all okay. You went home with God today. He will hug you when you are sad, give you a life you never had. This elegy was followed days later with a news story headlined, Kids Thrown from Bridge All Had Strong Personalities detailing, with nearly unendurable pathos, how Ryan organized his toys, how Hannah was a fashionista in training, how Lindsay especially loved her grandmother, and the innocent smile and infectious laugh of infant Danny. All of this for the children, but more so for those who searched the shorelines for their bodies, who gathered in the churches and at the vigils, who struggled to make sense of the unimaginable in their midst, to defend themselves against the finality of the act, the latent possibilities at work within a human heart, and all outmatched, ultimately, by the shadow of death. At his sentencing, Lem Long was ordered by the judge while awaiting execution on death row, to be shown pictures of the four children each day as punishment, for memory's sake.
And now the conclusion of Pilgrim's Tour to Jubilee, a history of Nelstone's Hawaiians, the second of two parts. Carnival does not know footlights, noted the Russian theorist Mikhail Bakhtin, in the sense that it does not acknowledge any distinction between actors and spectators. Carnival is not a spectacle seen by the people. They live in it, 
and everyone participates because its very idea embraces all the people. While carnival lasts, there is no other life outside it. During carnival time, life is subject only to its laws, that is, the laws of its own freedom. It has a universal spirit. It is a special condition of the entire world, of the world's revival and renewal, in which all take part. Such is the essence of carnival, vividly felt by all its participants. In Mobile, Alabama, called Mother of Mystics, the carnival season for February 1929 saw 1,000 additional lights strung throughout Bienville Square, a parachute jump put on by the Southern Aerial Service, and a series of performances by Franz, the strongest man in the world. Smilo, the dancing clown, who once worked for the Ringling Brothers, made a special appearance, wandering the crowds. Police reported the seizure of several stills, several dozen barrels of whiskey, and a dozen barrels of mash in assorted raids throughout the city. The crew of Columbus and the infant mystics paraded, respectively, romances of Japan and old Egypt, while the order of myths offered music through the ages, the final float bringing the history of music to the present age of jazz, formed partly by a giant saxophone of gold. In the foreground, a grotesque grand piano with bellying legs, gleaming eyes, and grinning teeth provided a dancing place for the spirit of ragtime. On February 12th, Mardi Gras proper, a careless bystander tossed a match aboard an advertising float of the Oakdale Ice and Fuel Company, setting it alight and injuring 13, including Hubert Nelson, who suffered painful burns. The news item followed up later in the month with a report on his recovery. Local Hawaiian guitar player burned in float fire is much better, the brief read, noting that Nelson, together with accompanist J.S. Touchstone, have made a hit with their efforts at bringing forth soothing melodies from the guitar and have made a number of records for the Victor Recording Company. Victor released Adam and Eve, backed with You'll Never Find a Daddy Like Me, on January 18, 1929, and shortly thereafter the music of Nelstone's Hawaiians was available as far from Mobile as Bristol, Tennessee, Holdenville, Oklahoma, and Klamath Falls, Oregon. That month, and again in April, the men offered additional performances at the Cottage Hill Sanitarium. The routine of a tuberculosis sanitarium is one that very few laymen understand, a patient explained. Medical science has decided on the rest cure as a means of curing tuberculosis. Mother Nature and Father Time are the only medicines that defeat the plague. Practically all the time is spent abed in a relaxed position. The Hawaiians' periodic efforts at enlivening this convalescent community are perhaps explained by certain circumstances in the personal life of Douglas Touchstone, who that year was embroiled in a legal dispute with his mother-in-law, Mrs. Lily Hansen, regarding custody of his two children, aged seven and five. The whereabouts of Mrs. Minnie Touchstone, his wife at that time, are unclear, but her death certificate from the summer of 1933, at the age of 30, indicates tuberculosis of the lung as the principal cause of death, and that she herself might have convalesced at Cottage Hill during her five-year illness, 
and so been visited there by her singing husband, is not beyond the realm of possibility. April's show at the sanitarium also marked the reemergence of Lewis Seymour, not as a musician, but as a member of the duo's entourage, presumably with no hard feelings at being usurped. With Travis Brassell, a local barber, and Tom Cruise, younger brother of Touchstone's brother-in-law, and a driver for the Oakdale Ice and Fuel Company, who had himself survived the carnival float fire alongside Hubert Nelson. The men traveled en masse to each performance, including a show that month on the Eastern Shore where, as reported in The Onlooker of Foley, Alabama, all had an enjoyable time. Anyone who wishes these wonderful Hawaiian players for any kind of entertainment, notify H.A. Nelson of Mobile, Alabama. They are always glad to render service to anyone. In April came also a banquet performance for the newsboys of Mobile's Pictorial Review and a similar show in September for the newsboys of the News Item and the Register, which included a special radio demonstration by Nelson's older brother, Eben, proprietor of the Nelson Radio Company, Incorporated. September saw as well Hubert's participation in an old-time fiddler's contest, a Labor Day tradition, competing against a dozen other men with judging done by a local police lieutenant and the improbably named Dr. A.N.T. Roach, a retired physician and minor figure in a white slavery scandal that had disturbed Mobile some decades before. The standard Victor recording contract for the era was for one session per year, with the performers paid $50 per recorded side, over $800 in today's money, adjusted for inflation, plus any expenses incurred. In addition, the performers were given 25% of the mechanical royalties derived from the sale of their compositions, which amounted to one-half cent of the two-cent statutory total established by the Copyright Act of 1909. However much Nelson and Touchstone might have earned in royalties in the wake of their Memphis session is unknown, but their records presumably sold quite well, well enough that Victor invited the men via telegram for a follow-up session in Atlanta, Georgia, in late November 1929. Held at the Atlanta Women's Club, a chateauesque mansion on Peachtree Street with its own auditorium, the Victor docket for that week was sensational. Jimmy Rogers and Blind Willie McTell recorded, as well as the Carter family and the Georgia Yellowhammers. Nelstone's Hawaiians cut four sides on Saturday, November 30th, then rounded out their time in Atlanta with a live nighttime broadcast on radio station WSB, showcasing their new number, Mobile County Blues, an instrumental featuring Touchstone's harmonica and a spoken intro wherein the men engaged in a comic dialogue about drinking liquor. Released in July 1930, it was backed with the song Just Because, itself set to become an American standard, recorded by Elvis Presley, Brenda Lee, and Conway Twitty, among others. So standard, in fact, it was later the subject of a lawsuit brought by the Peer International Corporation against two other industry concerns alleging infringement but with the defendants arguing that the music had been in the public domain prior to Touchstone's and Nelson's writing, and that the latter had copied and appropriated substantial portions of their version from prior copyrights. Ironically, this defense is in keeping with Ralph Peer's own understanding of the many musicians with whom he worked and how they wrote their songs, that these men, being what they were, 
didn't get the words from a book or from anybody else. They heard them, and then they would forget part of them, and they'd make up their own version. These are all versions. Peer's observation is telling in light of the two other songs recorded by Nelstone's Hawaiians in their second Victor session, a so-called pathetic ballad called Village School, based on a turn-of-the-century composition by William Clay and S.R. Henry, and the beautifully titled but disquieting murder ballad, Fatal Flower Garden. A quiet waltz, sung in loose harmony, it tells of a schoolboy tempted and then slaughtered by a gypsy lady, all dressed in yellow and green, with the young lad calling in his final moments almost fatidically for those left behind. Take these finger rings off of my fingers, smoke them with your breath. If any of my friends should call for me, tell them that I'm at rest. Bury the Bible at my head, a testament at my feet. If my dear mother should call for me, With roots in Sir Hugh, an anti-Semitic tale of ritual murder and blood libel reaching back to medieval England, nearly two dozen variants of the song had been anthologized by scholar Francis James Child in the 19th century, and the ballad even mentioned by James Joyce in Ulysses. Surely, Nelstone's Hawaiian's most startling recording, it is something like a lullaby, but one that disturbs rather than consoles. For all human history, the music of the past had never been a burden. All music was, practically speaking, music of the present, passed down and replayed, created or recreated on the spot. But the recording angel, with whom Nelson and Touchstone had their brief and fateful rendezvous, changed the nature of that passage irrevocably. We are left in the wake of such encounters with certain echoes of uncertain fidelity backward, where ears were perhaps never meant to linger. The music and the context that gave rise to it, the writer Kurt Gegenhuber noted, were once in fluent conversation, as if speaking in the exclusive, intimate, cryptophasic language of twins. Torn from an incarnate context, the joys and frailties of certain music, Fatal Flower Garden, for instance, become unmoored and lend themselves to easy caricature in later ages of peace and stability. It is not as though children in our own time are no longer murdered. It is rather the song's easy familiarity with death that disconcerts, the violence of its world and of its native listeners unambiguous and directly sensible. Consider that in January 1930, shortly after the song was recorded, 
Douglas Touchstone's sister Viola was awakened in the dead of night by a noise outside her house. Upon investigating, her husband, Ike Cruz, spied an unknown band lurking in their yard and so opened fire on the prowler with his pistol. A pool of blood on the back porch, a news item reported, after the man had run, showed the shots had been effective. Consider as well that this was not even Viola's first encounter with the Midnight Rambler. In September 1906, when she was but 12 years old, an unknown man forced his way into the Touchstone home one night, with her father away on a railroad run and her mother asleep in the front room. The man attacked Mrs. Touchstone, whose screams brought Viola running. A little girl grappled with him, the news item recounted breathlessly, and at one time had him by the hair, and she says from the way it felt, the man was a Negro. The news account's insistence on a Negro throughout, identifiable only by the texture of his hair in the hands of a frightened young girl, suggests something of the full dread and pathos of life in the Old South, vicious and bizarre. The man stole three dollars, but also inexplicably in the Touchstone's kitchen, smeared lard all over his face and hands. He left the house by a rear door and went into Choctaw Swamp. He left grease marks on the edges of the door as he went out which is to say that for Nelson and Touchstone, their friends and families and neighbors in Mobile, a song about a gypsy woman killing a child was less exotic, less rarefied than our contemporary circumstances might imply. Perhaps as the peace and stability of our own age begin to collapse, something of the context of the old recordings will begin to reemerge. Monuments not only to the enduring power and mystery of death, but the possibilities of rest, delight, and sanctuary. In March 1930, centennial year for Carnival in Mobile, a delegation of visiting Canadians played a bagpipe concert in Bienville Square. Smilo the Clown returned to dance for the crowds, while a young saxophonist from the University of Alabama band fell four stories from a window of the Battlehouse Hotel during the ball of the infant mystics. The year's King Felix III, a local attorney named C.C. Inga, radiogrammed his subjects from his ship, Pontchartrain, before disembarking to meet his queen, Miss Sophia Dunlap. Greetings to all my loyal subjects in the realm of mirth and merriment. May a spirit of goodwill prevail in my kingdom and bring universal joy to its people. The crew of Columbus offered that season the Congress of the Planets, the Knights of Revelry, St. Anthony's Dream, and the Order of Myths, what was described in the press as a parade of horrors, bloody pirates, savage Indians, goblins, and ghosts, but as always using their emblem float to showcase the eternal fight between death and folly, round and round the broken column of life, folly, clad in motley attire, drove with golden bladders, the specter, death. All during Mardi Gras night, according to ancient traditions, folly is successful in driving away death, 
But when Lent begins at midnight, the Grim Reaper is triumphant. A month earlier, on February 7th, Victor released Village School, backed by Fatal Flower Garden. That same evening at the Battle House, Nelstone's Hawaiians, alongside a number of other local performers, played the inaugural broadcast of WODX, Mobile's first radio station. Listeners throughout the city responded with telegrams congratulating this new civic endeavor, with some also requesting particular favorites from the band's repertoire, standards like Carolina Moon and On the Beach at Waikiki, and even Ike Cruz himself listening at home with his family, sending in for Mobile County Blues. But whatever enthusiasm Nelson and Touchstone might have felt regarding their blooming career, the Depression was an inauspicious time for selling records. Total U.S. sales for the industry fell by nearly 90% between 1929 and 1933. Even the great Jimmy Rogers, accustomed to selling upwards of 500,000 copies of each new release, saw his numbers collapse to only five or 10,000 sales per record. What specific impact the Depression had on the Hawaiians is unknown. Victor released Mobile County Blues backed by Just Because on July 18, 1930. Two days earlier, on Wednesday the 16th, the duo played a double rush dance at Bayview. After this, the trail for their music grows cold. Perhaps the general economic situation did take a toll, or perhaps the men had a falling out, but perhaps tastes were changing for their audience as well. That same year, a Birmingham radio operator named Frank Romeo complained that Hawaiian music is played too much in this country. I think that type of music should be listened to only when one wants to go to sleep, sitting in a deep armchair with his pipe and book. That type of music comes from a country that is hot and dreamy and lazy, and that's the way it makes me feel to hear it. I just feel the warm, sultry atmosphere of the little Hawaiian islands when I hear the string music that originated there. Another thing that's wrong with the Hawaiian music we hear in this country is that it's really not natural. Much of it is written by Americans, and the majority of it is played by people who have never been on the islands. Of course, the music's pretty, and I like it, but there are just certain times when I think it ought to be played. In 1932, for the first and only time, and for reasons unknown, Douglas Touchstone listed his occupation in the Mobile City Directory as musician he died on January 7, 1937, aged 39, from bronchopneumonia, and was laid to rest in Magnolia Cemetery in Mobile. His sister Viola petitioned the government for a military headstone. Eventually, she and Ike would be buried beside him. Hubert Nelson, in contrast, lived long enough to get divorced, get remarried, and watch his two sons build up their own families. His grandchildren called him Papa. According to his granddaughter, just because became a standard in the family, memorized by the children who were often called upon to perform it. He died on January 9, 1985, aged 82, from complications related to emphysema 
and cardiovascular disease. His family still has his guitar. Postscript On the eastern shore of Mobile Bay, only a short drive from the city, occurs a remarkable and unpredictable natural phenomenon called the Jubilee. In summertime, usually before sunrise, when a rising tide is joined by an easterly wind, from calm water, the shoreline will suddenly be crowded with crustaceans and bottom-feeding fish. Blue crabs, shrimps, flounders, worm eels, stingarees, that linger in great numbers for several hours at the shore before heading back unharmed into deeper water. Residents of the area keep a careful eye, and when a jubilee is discovered, announce its arrival with carnivalesque enthusiasm, alerting neighbors before heading to the beach with coolers, buckets, and even pickup trucks, where the bay's abundance can be gathered by the armful. While science has some understanding of how a jubilee occurs, oxygen-depleted water flooding the bottom of the bay and forcing the marine life toward the shore as though ushered by an unseen hand, an individual instance can never be anticipated, its bounty offered seemingly by pure caprice, a gift. As sign and symbol, in the face of all things human and frail, It stands as tangible promise in the world that the ancient carnival impulse of at last overcoming death is something more than wishful thinking, and that the fullness of mortal desire might actually be realized, if only at journey's end. Or so it seems, which in itself might be wishful thinking. In the meantime, vanquished by death perhaps, but still unbowed, Folly continues its dance around that broken pillar of life, especially on Saturday nights, and most certainly to the music of a good string band. When the Lord established the heavens, I was there, when he marked out the vault over the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he fixed fast the foundations of the earth, when he set for the sea its limit, so that the waters should not transgress his command. Then was I beside him as his craftsman, and I was his delight day by day, playing before him all the while, playing on the surface of his earth, and I found delight in the human race. The Slow Work, a poem by Leslie Clinton. He tilts his head and flips his hair. His brow tells me he's stuck. Before him on the screen, a bare-bones argument about hard hearts and violent ends hangs from a rumbling rough draft title, Death in Ancient Tragedy and Modern Life. He shoots a sidelong glance my way in search of guidance through the barbed words that these lovers, sisters, kings, and fools hurl at each other till they're left with one bleak truth. It's complicated. They're not wrong. My student feels they're missing something, though. 
I smile and kneel beside his desk to scan the fledgling draft that pixelates his screen. He thinks there's something with the blood and guts and all the corpses at the end, he says, eyes squinting at a blurred idea that must be floating in the air above us. Some big insight into morals. But, he sighs, whatever he puts down just sounds so sus. That's teen for dubious. And basic, that means unoriginal. Like here, he says, about the hero and her tragic flaw. It's way too obvious. Disdain for this half-formed idea clouds up his face. It's like they want the right thing in these tragedies, but then they twist it. Like it looks like love until Medea shows up with her kid's blood on her hands, or Haman stabs himself, or Judas pockets thirty silver coins. Young ancient tragedy and peers toil toward an end whose form they can't discern. They bow before their screens and suffer all the slings of school's fluorescent coil. And through the strain, a fawn-legged logic takes miraculous and wobbly steps. But once that logic's grown and loping in the fields, it easily falls prey to pragmatism's steel trap jaws, which leave the most grotesque and mangled corpses Morals bold upon the page when lived out in the world get mauled if they aren't harbored in a mad love's care. Love mad enough, let's say, to move back home when dad's alone and old. To empty out the urine bag and spoon-feed mush into a toothless mouth. To sleep for half-hour stretches years on end so that the wasting frame that once taught sons to build an engine, ballroom dance, and warm a pew, the man who liked the psalm about the peaceful pastures did not end his days in some stark room that smelled of antiseptic. The writer hits his buddy on the arm. I think I've got it, dude. Now check this out. He looks to make sure that I'm listening along with dude. These characters, their love, it's mid, it's trash. I want a character who walks through hell for someone. That's the love I want to write about, the OP kind. Overpowered love, I say. I like it. Write that down, you'll polish it up later. And I move on toward the next raised hand. While these young scholars may need ancient drama with its corpses and anagnorisis, most urgently, they need the news that makes no sense and bears all things and goes all in and makes all new and brings all back to life. 